This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. Although, really, this week it should be called Kyle and Jen versus the Machine. Hello, Jen Sanford. Hi. Uh, my name is Kyle, of course. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Now, before I pitch it over to the movie trailer to listen to, this is some weird stuff been going on. Uh, Dave just left this note saying, I'll be back. Two of those words were misspelled, I should just point out. But that's the note that he left. Jen, you didn't kill Dave, did you? Of course I didn't kill Dave. I think if there's one thing that we can maybe thematically suggest this week, it's that since this podcast began, I speak for a large cross-section of people who want Dave out of it. And the natural, (sighs) obviously, replacement would be me, uh, Jen Sanford. um, And, you know, I think through a well-orchestrated campaign of nonviolence, We've managed Mm. to help Dave to see a new reality. And I am so pleased to be the first to welcome you all to Kyle and Jen rightfully versus the machine. Isn't that right, machine? Don't hand it to me. All right. Well, we'll we'll see how long this goes. Dave does have dozen of fans. So, uh, but you, you did do a good setup here because today we're going to be talking and watching the film Gandhi. What the hell is going on? I don't know, sir. The agent got a telegram and it just said he is coming. He gave the time of the train. Who the hell is he? I don't know, sir. Some men change their times. One man changed the world for all time. My name is Gandhi, Mohandas K. Gandhi. Well, whoever you are, we don't want you here. I suggest you get back on that train. A big thank you to the patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue this show, since the machine doesn't you know, help us pay for these movies. Uh, plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Before we, yeah, before we get into this week's film, I just wanted to mention one thing. A little, a little bit of feedback we got on our ET episode from last week, uh, and I can't believe I forgot to mention this because I literally had it written down. There's this little thread I've been weaving, and I still forgot to do it. Jen, I don't expect you to know this at all. Do you know that uh, Michael Jackson released an ET album? No. Okay. No. So we played, we played a bit of that on last week's episode. <laughs> it is, it is a children's album like he reads the story of et it's a you can listen to the full thing on youtube which i did he just narrates the story of et while john williams score plays and then there's these two songs that play it's the same song but plays at the beginning and at the end and he won the grammy for best children's album that year the same year as thriller it's a wild story that is wild anyways the 
songwriters of the song that Michael Jackson sings are the same people we've been talking about. They're the people who wrote the song in Tootsie. They're the people who wrote the song from Yes, Giorgio. Both of those were nominated for Best uh, Original Song at the Academy Awards. This songwriting wife and husband team of Alan and Marilyn Bergman. They, of course, lost to Up Where We Belong from An Officer and a Gentleman, which is probably the better choice, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was going to make that connection where these two songwriters who've had an extensive career wrote The Way We Were. Jen, if you're familiar Whoa. with uh, that, we like the song "The Way We Were." Had this huge 1982. They were nominated for two Academy Awards, lost both, and then wrote this album with Michael Jackson and won a Grammy for it. Like it's just wild to me. That is crazy. And Michael Jackson yeah. with a children's album. You look at the cover, and it looks like a grad photo where <laughs> ET is awkwardly like holding Michael Jackson from behind. It is what? It's such a wild. The 80s were a wild time, Jen. They Everyone was on time. coke and and no one realized they were being stupid every Yeah, and our lungs day. were filled with hairspray. Yeah, it was a wild time. Ugh. We have this big undertaking here this week to discuss Gandhi. I think the person and the movie. You have seen the movie before, Jen? I have seen the movie before, yeah. How did you see this movie? I saw this movie in college. Obviously, as a person born in 1983, it wasn't, you know... Something that, you know, as a five-year-old, I would have seen when it was released on on video. But I think that, um, you know, in college, there was obviously the, the rise of Nelson Mandela gave way to really who were the people that paved the way for, for him. And as someone who studied politics in college and has gone on to have a, you know, a, a, a space in the political space, um, I think this film is sort of like required, required reading, required viewing. Yeah, you're probably a great person to really break this down here. I mean, this is almost like an impossible task because you could do an entire university lecture on this. But in general, just talking about Gandhi, the person, why is he such a huge, important figure in world history? You know, I think he represents really the rise of of the intellectual change maker. I think the thing that we so remember from Gandhi is the idea that how do you fight an enemy who refuses to physically fight against you? Right. How do you fight? How do you, how do you fight against someone's prerogative for change when they can mobilize a movement of nonviolence? And I think when we look at other leaders, I mentioned Nelson Mandela, uh, I mentioned there's, you know, civic movements that were scaled by, you know, everyday citizens and people, the idea that you can bring people to say, you're going to have to meet me intellectually. You're going to have to have a conversation about, you know, the, you know, the idea of change and, and future. And we're going to do it in a way that, you know, our minds prevail over our, you know, our armory. And those are provocative moments in history. And I think, you know, Gandhi being present both in early apartheid South Africa and then, of course, the, the you know, the plight of independence for India. You know, these are important movements in terms of the, you know, turning the tide uh, on colonialism, which, you know, still that tide is still turning today. So I think you look for those people who found a method to effectuate change that really raised what we call superordinate goals, which are the idea that what are the things that we can only achieve for ourselves if we work together with a particular paradigm of thinking. And I think leaders, you know, so often have aspirations to do that but so rarely can pull it off that when a leader does 
it becomes so incredibly noteworthy. And I think the way in which he conducted himself um, and, and the way in which he had a vision to lead and, you know, not to get super meta here, but the idea that, you know, a lot of people today and then, then and today still think that leadership means this is my vision and follow, follow me. And I think Gandhi tripped mm. into what we really do define as leadership, which is the idea that, you know, who do we aspire to be as a community? What are our values that we need to raise? And then let's go together to reach these things and I will help to guide. And I think there, those are really different those those are really different things that we even today don't give enough credit to. No, I think it's well said. I, I have to just come from my angle. Like, you know, getting into films when I was a teenager, uh, I started, of course, looking back in time to see like what won Best Picture in the year I was born, and like what you mm-hmm. know what what happened in the seventies and that sort of thing. And it, I mean, it's not every single movie from the nineteen eighties, but there was a good run up and even to the early nineties that it was like big lavish huge epics were like like the thing that they were kind of rewarding later on in the decade there's like the last emperor uh amadeus is another one i would maybe throw into that pile very different movies uh and then you get into like the brave hearts and all that kind of stuff into into the early 90s the english patient i have two bits of prejudice when it comes to talking about or coming into watching this movie for the first time which i'm readily admitting so you can discard my opinion, probably people that are listening to this. But number one, I found a lot of those when I watched them, at least as a teenager into my early 20s, fairly slow paced and not all that engaging to me. It's like, yeah, the performances are good, but like they're not like invigorating me to like watch these movies. And secondarily to that, I think there is this Im- uh, impulse when it comes to and I always forget how to say this word, biopics or biopics, however you want to say, to almost tackle too much to really fit into a movie in a satisfying way where it's like, we're going to try and cover 40 or 50 years of a person's life. And we're just going to try and cram as much information into this movie. And I always feel like, well, then I feel like it should be maybe made into like a mini series or something that can like really dig into those, those thoughts. I, I think I, as a person, as a, a person who loves stories, I almost crave like that three act structure of like beginning, setup, climax, you know, falling action. And people's lives just don't do that, and they can't do that because our lives don't fit that that kind of narrative. But then it always leaves me a little bit unsatisfied to watch films that cover that much time because then it just feels like you're going through a checklist and be like, okay, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and I'm like, okay, great, I <laughs> maybe I should have just read this. Yeah, I mean, let me offer this as the new full-time permanent co-host of this podcast. Sure, sure. Um, you know, you have to remember, obviously, the, the time and space that this was mm-hmm. released. These, these films, the majesty of them was the scale. I mean, look at the very yes. first scene that opens in the funeral scene where we see there's no CGI there. That was just yes, 30, throngs, extras, yeah. throngs of people. And so the scale, right? We, we celebrated scale. And I think we really stayed with a lot of this celebrating scale, you know, kind of culminating with Titanic in the late 90s. It was about the bigger the yeah. film, the, you know, the more majestic the film, the scale of the film was what made these films worthy. And I think we, we can really, like Chariots of Fire, I think Spartacus, I think those kind of films really ushered in that era of like these, this, you know, this majesty of storytelling. And then I think we moved into a period in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s around innovation 
you know, the rise of films like The Matrix, you know, receiving critical acclaim because they were, you know, they relied on so many tips and tricks. You know, we certainly saw really the boon of of animated films that, you know, were so mm-hmm. gorgeously digital and, and the rise of Pixar. And then now we live in a space where we recognize the individual character work, right? We crave the stories. And I think, you know, Aaron Brockovich was a, was a great example of, of, of being part of, of a future of that era where it was, you know, character driven film. And I think maybe it's worth sort of looking at it through that lens that you have always been about character driven films. Like those without question are your most favorite types of films is where the character goes on a journey. You talked about the three acts. I think it's bigger than that. I think it's about what is the, you know, what is the personal journey and, you know, Gandhi being so introspective and so, um, you know, community minded, you know, we weren't going to be able to tell that kind of story. We weren't going to be able Mm -hmm. to tell the story from Gandhi's perspective because Gandhi was so externally focused on on the goals that he was trying to to achieve on behalf of um, South Africans and Indians and justice as a whole. So I think that this film lives in its space and time because, you know, what are the checklist goals, right? The checklist goals are, you know, tell tell this big story for this big person, you know, demonstrate with scale the majesty of the person. And, you know, use every type of storytelling you can to talk about the versatility of this man's many, you know, efforts and successes and failures. Well, I'm excited to see what I think about this movie when we jump into it. I think before we go for our break here, uh, there's one other person I think we should just briefly discuss, and that's Richard Attenborough, who's the director of this movie. Yes, yes, yes. Who I have to tell you... (laughs) basically I know him as the grandfather from Jurassic Park. Like that's basically how yeah, I know Richard Attenborough the most. Of course. Wasn't he also in Miracle on 34th Street? Yeah, he's, he's Santa in the remake yeah. of Miracle on 34th Street. And uh, I think the only other movie I've watched that he's directed is A Chorus Line. I think that's the only other one that I've seen of his. But would, anything that you want to say about Richard Attenborough? Well, I think, you know... You know, obviously he comes from a family of pedigree, right? Like mm-hmm. every single person in that family is about, you know, they just kind of like have this incredible essence of storytelling. I, I think if Attenborough sounds familiar is he to related you. related to David Attenborough yeah, that's or his, no? That's his brother. Yeah. And they have, another, is, okay. they have another brother, John, who all in his own right is just as successful. So okay. there are striking similarities to me between Richard Attenborough and David Attenborough. Right. In a world where the whole world is like, hey, look at this bug. David Attenborough's like, watch the tiny legs as it moves <laughs> delicately against the leaf, not disturbing the leaf. Like there is such intricate storytelling in, in like the in like the DNA mm-hmm. of this family. And I think um, I think Richard Attenborough tells that kind of particular story in everything he writes. You mentioned a chorus line. I've seen a chorus line as well. I love that film. But again, I think what makes the chorus line so good is the the particular nature of how that story is told. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of connection points between his entire library collection. And I'll be honest, I haven't seen them all. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a great and even look in the character he plays. You you mentioned um um so, you know yeah, uh scientist John Hammond from yeah, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Exactly. And even that character, don't you find he's instantly likable for his particular nature? Yeah. How every single <laughs> word he speaks has resonance and power. Like of course he makes four hour long films, right? Because there's a particular nature to it. But I think 
the thing that really matters about about Attenborough here is that we know him to be an outstanding art collector and art oh, okay. is very important to him. I feel this is a setup to a heist movie. And and you see that really evident in this film because there's this, you know, sort of paint the picture connection between the cinematography and the screenplay, right? That's why I think partially why this film is so long is because every scene needs to be set up in its context. And we've seen a little bit of that. If you've seen the um the film from a few years ago with Nicole Kidman and Dev uh Dev Patel uh, Lion. Oh, Lion. It has the yeah. same construct of uh, also set in India ironically. It has the same context of setting up every scene to paint a picture and I think that that um you know that's a very I think ahead of its time way to way to bring us into a film. All right. Well, I am excited to delve into this a little bit further. We uh, are going to now spend the next three hours watching this movie. Um, I actually have to go thank some sponsors. So Jen, just wait here. I've, um, I've set up some, some candy for some snacks. So uh, I'll be back here in a few hey. minutes and then <laughs> we can continue. No problem. I think the weirdest thing was that right before Dave left here, he shaved his entire head, gave away all of his possessions. I don't know. Something's not right here. Anyways, before Jen eats all of my snacks that was supposed to be for both of us, I'm here to let you know that Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. But luckily, this week, we are also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, so let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. The podcast you're listening to is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. My name is Kyle, and I'm the host of Putting It Together. From a very early age, I've been obsessed with musical theater, and in particular, I've adored the music of composer Stephen Sondheim. So I decided to create a podcast where I invite on a new guest each week and go through each one of his productions, show by show, and song by song. You'll learn about theater history, you'll laugh, maybe cry, but always, you'll be swept up in the music. It's called Putting It Together, and it's available anywhere you get podcasts. This week we're also brought to you by Rumi. With warmer weather comes yard work, and lots of it. Prune your trees and shrubs, clean your eaves troughs, replace those drafty windows you noticed over the winter, or you can call Rumi to take care of your outdoor and indoor spring home maintenance while you fire up your barbecue and relax. You can visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, or call 1-844-777-7864 and let Rumi's trusted local experts take care of your yard so all you have to do is enjoy it. This abandoned warehouse we have has nothing but leaky windows, so that's an OSHA hazard. All right, well, we're back here. Just finished watching our movie. Gandhi, all three hours and eight minutes of it. Maybe an impossible task again, but if someone came to you, Jen, and asked you, what's the film Gandhi about? What would you say to those people? Um, well, first of all, I ate all the snacks. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You're going to have a tummy ache later oh, today, I already Jen. do. Um, what is the film Gandhi about? Well, it is the story of Mahatma Gandhi and uh, his, his journey from a young, a young lawyer who studied in Britain into understanding apartheid in South Africa 
being basically punted from South Africa for his efforts to fight against segregation, only to land in India and realize the plight of Indians between um, what was left of the of the British. I'm going to say occupation as a controversial word. Um, the you know the 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 laws and and the taxation of the British and and the plight that that had mm-hmm. on you know Indians and Indian farmers. You know the ongoing control by the British on on India. India's, which then became India's, uh, you know, battle for independence, right? Their strife for independence. Yeah. Um, it tells really the, st- the story of uh, political leadership uh, from the outside. It tells a rare story of how an everyday citizen, through a vision of leadership and their ability to amass a, a following, um, earns the right to be in the political system and what the decisions for him looked like outside of the system and then when inside the system, it tells the story of him from a very, very young lawyer, I think 22 years old, all the way through to uh, the end of his life when he was assassinated. This does have the boldness of being like, we're just going to call this Gandhi. We're just going to call the movie Gandhi. We don't have to do anything flourishy or I, I, for some reason for me, I, mean, I can only talk for me. That always makes a movie feel more compelling where they just leave like, it's just this person's name, right? <laughs> Aaron Brockovich. I'm like, ooh, who's this person? Why should I know about yeah. her? I always think of the Leonardo DiCaprio fil- film uh, Hoover about J. Edgar. Oh, no, it was called J. Edgar. And J. you were Edgar. like, it was called you're J. Edgar. like, when this works, it works. And J. Edgar proves when it doesn't work, it's bad. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Or maybe more recently, the movie Dog. It's like, well, yeah, what if there was just a movie with a dog in it? This Directed by Channing Tatum. What could go wrong? Um, all right. So on this rewatch then, Jen, um, you know, after... Only a few years, I guess, from the time you were in university, of course. Oh, so kind. Um, when, <laughs> what was your, what were your feelings on this rewatch? I've been, I've been given a note not to be totally political here, but you know, I'm rewatching <laughs> you know, this film. The machine film. handed that to you, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm rewatching this film at a time that, you know, here in Canada, we're having a real conversation about what it means to protest. You know, I was, I was watching, while I was watching this film, I was, I was also watching my Twitter feed around, uh, you know, conflict between the police and what I think are peaceful protesters in my very own city. And it remarks mm-hmm. on me that I think the story that is never told about Gandhi is how volatile it is to ask people to follow you, one, but two, to follow you in a way that is incredibly hard to do, which is to be beaten and to be mistreated and to choose not to be violent and how volatile that is because it just takes one person. It just takes one person to say, I can't, I can't tolerate this. I can't do this. I can't, I can't blindly follow this person for the whole thing to come apart. And how he managed to hold all of that together, I think was really what I took away from this second viewing is how volatile his vision always was. And yet people en masse followed it, even when in, in many cases it cost, their, cost them their lives. And I think mm-hmm. um, it speaks to us as a society craving a leader who can express our vision and who we have trust and confidence and respect in to lead us. And I think it I think that's the story that I really took away from this second watching of Gandhi. You know, what strikes me very interesting that you bring up here and really something that I've noticed in so many of the protests of the last I'll even say five years because there's been uh, a lot of turmoil in the world. And I even think back to a time like when Occupy, the Occupy movement was so, so big uh, here in Canada and the U.S. What always struck me was the fact that 
whether you sympathize with those motivations or not, there never really was that leader that stood up, or at least I never saw anyone that had that same resonance as a Gandhi or as some yep. anyone pick your political persuasion who could stand up and be like, Oh yeah, that is the person that we want to aspire to. That's the ideal that we want to follow. It's kind of this mishmash of people trying to make things happen altruistically and just not being able to communicate that effectively. I think that's something that's interesting about Gandhi is that he saw the injustices, he he went forward, and people just wanted to follow him because of that. Yeah, there's two things there. The first thing is that, and you said it twice, is that they would look at that leader and say, this is someone that I want to follow. I yeah. think that there is a wide difference between here is the leader that I want to follow and here is mm-hmm. a leader that I will follow. Sure. I think yeah, that yeah. there's a, a there is a wide there's a wide berth between those two things. And the other thing is, you know, I think that this speaks to the fact that we have leaders today that we've confused um, that don't understand fundamentally what leadership is. Right? Leadership is about surfacing sure. the community values that are already there. And we live in a society today where leaders who are like, "This is what I think we all need. Let's go." They, like that's the thing about Gandhi where he he looked at it and said who are we as a community and who are we as a country and who are we as a people and how do the values and the constructs of who we are represent or emblematic mm. of how we lead and you know i i think that those those values of community and of service i mean there's a provocative moment in the in the film where he tells his wife that she has to clean the latrines and she's like i'm not doing right. that like that's dirty work and i'm a woman and he's like no you're going to do it because we all take a turn and we all have to be very you know we all have to work together and you know convince you know people to to blindly follow uh not blindly follow but to convince people to follow in a way that is not perhaps in their nature, I think is, I think is something really, truly extraordinary. And I think that was really emblematic of the type of film that Richard Attenborough wanted to make. And I think talking about the type of film we wanted to make really matters here, because as you know, a lot of scripts were written for Gandhi, like a lot of scripts were written and rejected by Attenborough. And it stalled this project for a long time. And it's really rare in Hollywood, because usually it's like you get your script and then you go get your funding. This had its funding and couldn't get a script. So it had all of this pressure. And then they had a writer. He had a massive stroke in the rewrite process. And so it was like, okay, we're not going to try to work with these rewrites. And then ultimately, John Briley became the writer. But ultimately, what John Briley wrote was not the film that was made because John Briley wrote a tension script. He wrote a script that was about the battle between Gandhi and the military leadership. And he wanted to show the dichotomy and the really create a a script of cognitive dissonance that you felt within it, you know, the two types of fighting and who would emerge victoriously. He wanted that tension script, but Attenborough was not going to make that type of film. And I think that also is the reason why this film is so long is because you, you see this, um, this almost trying to appease two masters where you have a little bit of the tension between the military and, and, and Gandhi and, and, and uh, the civilians of India. And then you also see that there's an effort to tell the story of Gandhi, the man and his lived experience as a, as a, as a person fighting for India's independence and trying to appease those two things. How do you possibly go through the editing process? This to follow up on some of the threads that you've brought up here. I, I totally agree with, that differentiation between like what did, was it want and will follow someone who is going to lead? Yep. 
I always bring this up. There's this one of my favorite managers I've ever had in my entire working career was when I was like, when I was back at the working at the bookstore that I used to work at. And uh, she was the head of the store, really hard worker. She was great, tough but fair. And she always said to me, it's like, listen, yes, I am like, quote unquote, like the head of the store. I make the final decisions on things, but I'm never going to ask you to do something that I'm not going to do too. Like, mm-hmm. I would never do that. Like, so if, like, the bathroom's needed washing, I will do that. I will roll up my sleeves and do it. Yep. But I will never ask you to do something that I will not do. And I think that, that there's a power to that. There is a power to that. My former manager would eat the next largest person in a show of dominance. I guess it's just different leadership styles. Let me tell you about my impressions of this film, and then we can fight about it, because I know we're going to fight about it just based on what you're saying here. I, I have to preface everything that I'm about to say with... I do not hate this film. I think it's going to come across as I'm w- like way more negative than I probably actually am about this movie. And it's not the length, honestly. I don't think the length is the problem with this movie. I like longer films. I just watched uh, Not Made for Best Picture, uh, Drive My Car, which is a three-hour-long film itself, and I loved it. It's one of my, it was my favorite film of the year. I like Lawrence of Arabia, so it's like not the length that really bothers me. I think, ultimately, what started to frustrate me about this film is even with its length, it felt like it was rushing through things. And I think that's part of what I said at the beginning of it just kind of feeling like it's a checklist trying to go through like these major things that happen in Gandhi's life. Uh, But also my major, major thing is that it does not allow Gandhi to ever come across as bad. And if you read up on Gandhi, there are some really legitimate criticisms I think that you can level at him while still honoring the fact that he did so much good for the world. Like, I think that that is the interesting uh, balancing act you can do with, quote, unquote, like a great man in history, which is like, look at all this great stuff he did, but also there's this stuff over here that maybe we should like bring to light. Um, and I'm talking even like from the very beginning of his time in South Africa, if you read up about that, yes, he was championing there to be equality, but really equality between like, Indian people and white people. He did not want black people to be on that train uh, with him. There's also the stories about his interactions with the young women. So I think that not doing that almost as a disservice to him because he becomes like this Christ-like figure that just walks around the movie offering like these really great speeches that's like, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And then into this like repeated thing of like going to jail, flash forward the few years he's in jail. Now he comes back out, gives another speech, goes back to jail, flash forward, gives another speech. And it kind of felt like it was just going through the motions of that. Epic film. There are so many scenes here that are just beautiful to look at. I love the scene of his like first stand of him like being beaten by those cops and he's bloody and he's putting the th- uh, those documents into the fire. I think that's such an effective scene. Even that the massacre that happens right as his his followers are kind of rising up and the military comes in and this shoots a bunch of people right like those are like heartbreaking and like this is really uh, effective how they're communicating this message. But ultimately by the end I felt like I understood what Gandhi was doing and what he did in his life, but not really why he was doing what he was doing. Well, yes. Okay. So yes, there are things about like the film had a great opportunity to talk about the volatility of Gandhi when Mm -hmm. um, they were brokering a deal for what to do with Pakistan and Mm -hmm. India. There could have been a greater polarization because we know in those negotiations, the question was asked. Uh, around like how can you how can you 
try to bring, you know, uh, an end to apartheid, which of course is the Africans mm -hmm. word for, of apartness. How can you advocate for the idea of, you know, apartness right. and then try to segregate Muslims and Hindus? I mean, they got really close to it when they right. said, how are we going to do this when we've got, you know, different factions of the same religion on two separate sides of the country? And you then see the scene of like the massive migration of people, yeah. which then led to a very complicated start for Pakistan. I think I do think that there's a little bit of an era of like this is a celebration film, so we'll just kind of just come up over top of that yeah, and get it, back to it the does story. Get a little of, hand waved away, I feel in that scene. It's like, well, there, there's a lot of strife that happened after that. But I think you also have to consider the involvement of the Indian people in this filmmaking process. 100%. Like this was not and a the, British and the Gandhi family. Of course, like this was not the British coming in to make a film about, you know, Gandhi, like Attenborough did a, you know, really tried to work with the Indian people. And you're right, you know, Gandhi's family. I think we forget that there's, you know, the Gandhi legacy lives on. I feel, and this is without stereotyping uh, the, the extraordinary people of India, they really do regard him as a quintessential hero in their narrative yeah. they don't they don't do what we do here in canada where we say you know sir you know two things can be true like sir john a Macdonald, you know brought us the railroad united a one canada gave us a currency made us a trading commerce it's just you know what happened with residential schools that guy's a piece of shit, right we just write off you know our our people who are part of our progress they take a very different take in terms of you know, a hero is a hero and we will shape them as a hero because of what the goal that they ultimately achieved and what they ultimately taught the world about how we come to be a, to be a society. It's an incredible right. pr pride point for them. India gained its independence, not on the back of violence, which is how it was taken from them, but on, on the ideation of nonviolence. That's a very important pride point. If you are in India, it's a very you know, reticent part of their narrative. And so I think in the spirit of telling that story, they're like, this is what isn't going to be told. And I think this, for me, both sides of that coin fail. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is like, for sure, like uh, a, a terrible act that somebody does does not erase the uh, the good things that they did necessarily. And the vice versa is true as well. I think that sometimes it's more complicated, but yet more resonant true is really combating both of them there's uh in my letterboxed write-up that i did about this movie I, I bring up this docuseries that w kamau bell has been making here recently called uh we need to talk about cosby Cosby, yeah that's his framing of it right is like here is this man who was supremely important in the civil rights movement uh bringing black people into the film industry into roles that they had never had before paving the way for so many that would follow him and also was a serial rapist. And we have to have that discussion about like, look at all this stuff that we can celebrate and yet still criticize like this awful thing that he did over here too. It's, it's hard to do that A, on social media but, and B, I don't know how easy that is for a lot of humanity to grapple with, which is like uh, someone can be both things simultaneously does that mean that we have to like build monuments to everyone no <laughs> does that mean that we have to like cancel people and like never talk about them again no but we we, we need kind of need to grapple with them and talk about it in in both cases 
I I can't wait for the hate mail that you get by comparing Gandhi to Cosby here for a minute. But right. I yeah, good luck to you. Um, next week it'll just be called Jen versus the Machine. That's right. So this is my uh, nonviolent way of getting rid of both of you, I guess. And ultimately, it'll just be called the Machine, where I'll DJ dope trap music. But I think you have to realize how technically difficult that this is because. You're trying to raise the narrative of how do you fight an enemy that does not fight? How do you talk about Gandhi's incredible ability to quest- ask questions of ourselves, which rarely happens in points of time. And I think with the advent of social media down today will never happen again. We're talking about a person who is able to sustainly ask people to raise their personal conviction and sustain the nature of a revolution. And you have to do all of those things without making him saintly. I don't know. I don't like I pride myself as a writer. So do you. I don't know how you accomplish that goal. I don't know how you accomplish that goal. I know. Like, they, like it's almost impossible because like there was like one person who I forget who it was, but they suggested that Gandhi not be actually played by an actor, but a beam of light in this movie because they didn't think any one man should be oh, could, could take on the role. Okay. Richard Attenborough yelled at him, apparently. and was like, no, I'm not making that movie. Can you imagine a three-hour film where you don't see the main character named Gandhi? Like, yeah. oh my, who's watching that film? He'd be more Christ-like in this movie than, yeah. Yeah, like he would then be a, people. be a saint. I I just think, I just think, like, it's it's very, it's very difficult, I think, as a writer and as a director to tell the story of, of these extraordinary values that were being surfaced in this, in this community. I mean, you... I think we have to just take a step back and realize like what was happening in India, very similar to, you know, how America got its, its revolution, right? You know, let's the British taxing it and then not buying the goods that it told these farmers to grow as a way of, you know, systemically punishing them. And when you're starving and you're hungry and people are dying and villages are not thriving and you're feeling everything come apart and then someone shows up who's like four feet tall and says, don't fight, <laughs> don't fight, don't fight. And you go, okay, that's a remarkable thing. That's a remarkable oh, yeah. thing. And I think that that's the veneer of what this film was trying to tell. And I think how Gandhi comes off is almost a secondary part to that. Um, that's another great scene of them laying down while those incoming horses are just running at them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. like, I didn't actually know that was true, to be honest with you, that horses won't run over something that's, I don't know, I don't trample. know if that is true, but. They won't <laughs> trample. Uh, it is true. And, and yeah. I think, yeah. And I, the same thing about, you know, the courage to stand on the firing line, you know, how do you not see that mass casualty? Like a thousand people died, women and children, like it's the most savage possible outcome of a nonviolent protest. How do you then not remove that leader how do you then not well a thousand of us died man so i think we're gonna go a different way and i think that 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 film also had to tell that story of how do you sustain it how do you stay with a with a with a revolution knowing that there's no historical pathway of success like it's not like it was for nelson mandela where he's like gandhi did this work we have a model that we know this will work um, we know the power of of a non of of, of res- revolution and, and change of nonviolence. There was no paradigm. They had been conquered by the British. It had been a terrible experience. They were not alone in in being colonized. And and you're following. And it's it's in the film they do. I think a great job of everybody saying, "I thought he'd be bigger. 
right? Because he was right. this yeah, incredibly yeah, yeah. small, little, tiny man. He's like a still Getty, really. He just comes in and you're like, oh, I thought. Oh, he's I so he's so little. <laughs> Same thing with Mother Teresa, right? If you've ever seen like a yeah. life-size statue of her, she's so absolutely tiny. E.T. is actually taller than Mother Teresa. So. <laughs> Stop. Stop. <laughs> um, but I, I think that like the film had to tell all these extraordinary pivots. And I think to measure a film on like, oh, well, did Gandhi come off as too saintly? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I think you would have distracted from the story of this revolution if you would have then been like, oh, here's all this other shit about Gandhi. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it just gives a more fully rounded thing. I, I don't think it fits in this movie. I will concede that point that we're already at three hours and we're trying to get through everything that he's done. Just for me, it almost comes across as like, well, we are intentionally hiding these facts to like prove this point of how, how good of a person he was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Richard Attenborough never denied that it was a celebration film. He never denied right. that it was a celebration film. I guess you have to look at it through the lens. Was Gandhi the story of Gandhi or was Gandhi the story of the of the independence of India? I think when I watch Gandhi, it is the extraordinary story mm-hmm. of the um, independence of India. But I think what is interesting to me is that if this film were to be made today, which might be a question you're going to ask me later and I'm just tipping into now. Yeah. If this film were to be made today, you best know that the point of view would not have been this ominous third person. The point of view would have been through the lens of Martin Sheen or Candace Bergen as the as the journalists. It would have been told through that lens. If you've seen the trailer, it would for the, also be so the, dark I couldn't see what was going on in the movie too. No, but if you've seen the trailer for the film Elvis, you know that that yeah. film is going to be told through the legacy or through the Colonel lens or something. of of Tom Hanks as his manager. And you and I yeah. think if this film were to be made in in 2022, we would most absolutely see it told through the lens of one of those two or both of those journalists. Um, and it would have provided probably a more warty picture of of who he was. But so long as Attenborough and and Briley wanted a celebration film and the cinematographer especially did. I thought a lot. Now I'm just ch- taking over. Sorry, sorry, Kyle. Mm. I thought a ton about cinematography when I watched this film. I don't know why. Oh, because I kept thinking, what would this film have looked like if John Seal had done the cinematography? John Seal, of course, those of you that don't remember, most famously known for the cinematography work of the English patient. So mm-hmm. moving character drama through movement, which here, I think because of the technology and the scale and the budget, we saw a lot of, you know, a lot of rough cuts and we didn't see a lot of movement yeah, in the camera, shots, yeah. a lot of stillness. And that, that to me made the film pitch a little bit longer. I, what would this mm-hmm. film have looked like if it had had John Seal as that moving cinematographer? That's always a great question, I think, to ask is like, what would this film look like if we only changed like one element, like same director, yep. but different cinematographer or same everything else, but different writer. And you can like, yeah, there'd be some differences here and there for sure. I think just to your point about if this movie were made today, totally agree. They're, they would probably take that tack of like, OK, we're going to focus on this character over here as an observer into this story that's happening. I also think there would also be more bloody. That's the other thing I really noticed about this movie too, is that for all the violence that does get shown on screen, very little blood is actually ever shown within this, which I I think it's an interesting choice. I think probably for Attenborough's perspective, it's like, 
not that he probably expects like families to come and see this film. It's like, but if a teenager was interested, they could. <laughs> they they wouldn't be prevented from coming into this film and watching the message that I'm trying to provide. Yeah, I think again, in the spirit of creating a celebration film, when you have that kind of gore, you create a sense of you cre- you do two things. One, you create a sense of helplessness, right? There's there's yeah. helplessness inherently in it. Like, oh my god, all of these people have died, and then it becomes about the hopelessness of the film. And the other thing then is it becomes about something other than the quest for independence. It becomes about uh, creating this tremendous villain, right? This villain in the British and the villain in the military and the villain. And I think that they were really cautious to say that this film was about the overcoming of oppression, not about a villain and a victim and a victor. And I think that that's really important because I think Attenborough really would have been at a disservice. This film would have been at a disservice to portray the Indian people as helpless, right? As mm. just so, you know, overcome by the circumstances that are there to, to, you know, impede their success. I think that would have been a terrible way to frame this film. So I... I don't know if if more gore. The, the thing I found striking is that we know from from the the biography and the story of Gandhi that that you know these situations where there was mass casualties really 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 were hard on him. Like they were really yeah. hard on him and I think the film might like you said in the spirit of a checklist moved us too quickly through how those how those moments shaped his life like what i was looking for in this film especially in this in the second rewatch this week what i was looking for in this film were those moments of doubt i i feel like every leader has moments of doubt i have the same complaint about anything that has been made about nelson mandela or or martin luther king i know that there were moments where these men had doubt where they were like am i doing the right thing people are dying this is death on my watch like you know, mm-hmm. I know like Martin Luther King, that bus burning, like, you know, in movies, they're just like, we're more convicted than ever to keep going. And that there's no way that that is reflective or honest to the lived experience of these change makers. And I would have liked to have seen this film talk about it. You know, they, they tried to by saying, like, I will have a hunger strike. But I think that there should have been more of that torturousness that lied within him because massive amounts of people died and then massive amounts of people had to be migrated because of the choices that he made. And I feel like we didn't ever come back to how that shapes the soul of a change maker. Like that's what I'm looking for. But again, that's you and I wanting more of a character driven film because we've consumed films in the two thousands. And those are the types of films that are made in 2000. It's this tricky thing where like you want a real person to act like, a literary character or a film character it's like well that's impossible because that's not necessarily how people actually act the one last thing before we do some backstory here i think another thing that i actually did enjoy about this movie and you'll enjoy this jen being in the political space is that of course they show like the actual outreach of evil that can happen with regimes that are like occupying a land right there's actual armed forces shooting people that sort of thing but it also i think struck me of the evil of like the benign nature of bureaucracy, which is like they drag their feet and they talk and they talk and they talk. And it's these like very rich people sitting up in palaces. It's like, well, maybe we should give more things to the peasants. You know what I mean? It's like, they're so divorced from the reality of what is going on in there that that in itself, I think is evil because they don't even know what's going on. 
They're yeah, that just was there a, in the palaces. That was a stuff. little bit one note. That was a little bit one note. I had hoped that like the characters. John of, Gilgood is evil is what I'm trying to say, Jen. <laughs> I had hoped that maybe the the character of Vince Walker, which of course is is meant to be the real life journalist Webb Miller, played by Mart, a v- incredibly young and sexy Martin Sheen. Like, why wasn't that guy in every movie of the 80s? Just a little note. If you go and watch the original trailer for Gandhi, it is bananas because it does a bunch of stuff and it says starring Martin Sheen. I'm like, uh, he's in this for 10 minutes. What are you talking about? I know, about? but he, <laughs> was, this is he st- was such a smoke show that I think that oh, would, that would have gotten yeah. me to the into the theater, even still. Like, I'm obviously such a Homer fan of... of um, the West Wing, like I can't, like I don't even know yeah, why yeah. they continued to it's make President television. Right there, yeah. I don't know why they continued to even make television after that show. I would, if I was Aaron Sorkin, I'd be like, "Well, that's it. That's how you do it. Let's um, let's do something else. Let's go to space." I had hoped that that character of Vince Walker, Web Web Miller, would have helped to have brought context to the nature of, you know, the the colonial thinking, and I, it, it did get a little bit one note, and those scenes where they're like. You know, this is what they want. How, you know, how dare they? And I was like, okay, all right. We've seen this film. We've seen this film before. So, yeah, that wasn't my favorite. Well, that's the other thing, too. Like, talking about, like, my first criticism that I leveled about how Gunny almost becomes too saintly throughout this movie. Even the trials and tribulations he does go through, they do get resolved pretty quickly. Like, you brought up the example of that conversation he has with his wife. And she doesn't want to go and clean the latrines. I'm like... That was not a 30 second conversation that nope. happened in real life, <laughs> no, but it, it is sure in the movie. Wasn't. It's like, ah, uh, like that. I, and I, I, not that I want like a 20 minute sequence of cleaning the little trains, but I'm just saying it's like, oh, that feels a little bit not right or unearned. Yeah. But it, again, it felt like we then rushed the character development of her as a person, like the yeah. strength of her matters again i often wonder if this movie had been made in 2022, if it wouldn't almost be from her point of view. Right. And mm-hmm. I I think it's it's very striking to understand that you know he she she also followed him like I mean they were set up for him to be a British lawyer and they were gonna have three kids and you know just yeah. you know and then it became this whole other thing and she followed him and I think that she really as a character did not get her due but just to come back to to again this this trend of checklisting it's striking to me the scenes of like the British being like you know they want you know independence from the British. And the British are then seen as these tone deaf people. And then we see all the writing on the train. And I guess we're just supposed to pretend that like the British didn't make that entire infrastructure of train. That entire infrastructure of transport is currently current. Like, say, say what you will about the occupation. At least they made the trains run on time. So, But no, what I'm saying is like, the, you know, the, okay, I think we all know where I'm going. No, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Here's some backstory here then. This is exactly what people want. Two white people talking about the history of India. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This film was first screened on November 30th, 1982, and then very quickly opened up in North America. It's currently rated a 3.6 on Letterboxd out of 5, 8.1 over on IMDb. It has a 79 on Metacritic and on Rotten Tomatoes from 62 critics, it's at 85%. And then from 25,000 plus users, it's at 92%. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. And at least in Canada, you can actually stream this on Netflix. Basically anywhere you want to go and view this, you can. Its budget, and I thought this was surprising, was only $22 million. I was convinced it would be 
like twice much that bigger, for 1982. Much bigger. Its worldwide box office would be $127 million, but in just North America alone, it grossed $52 million, which uh, adjusted for inflation would be like $152 million today. Its plot description is the life of the lawyer who became the famed leader of the Indian revolts against the British rule through his philosophy of nonviolent protest. Now is a part of the show. This is kind of our newish thing that we're doing. I get to don my favorite game show host jacket. I have the long oh, microphone that Bob Barker you always sure used. Do. Jen, welcome to Guess yes. That yes. Tag. Oh no. Every movie that comes out, most every movie that comes out has a tagline that appears on the poster that yes. they present in the movie theaters. Yes. And so what I have done here, Jen, is that I'm going to give you three options. Okay. One of these is the, the real tagline that appeared on the poster. The mm -hmm. other two, I completely made up in my mind. Ooh, okay. I'm ready. So, was the tagline, his triumph changed the world forever? Was it, he broke the empire without lifting a finger? Or was it, it didn't have a tagline? B. He broke the empire without lifting a finger? Yes. You are completely wrong. It is actually, <laughs> it's actually the first one. His triumph changed the world forever. I thought that was it, but then I thought that's too easy. So unfortunately, you do not get the Kyle and Dave versus the Machine home game, but thank you for playing. That's um, fine. I ate all the snacks. I'm fine. I got my due. <laughs> Plus, when I'm the... When I'm the permanent host of, yeah. like, now that I'm the permanent host, I, I'm getting sure. rid of that game. That's a stupid game. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Kyle game. Kyle looks so hurt. He's like, what? What? People no. love this. It has dozens of fans. This stars a bunch of people. We have Ben Kingsley as Mahatma Gandhi, Rohini Hadagandhi as Katsuruba Gandhi, John Gilgood as Lord Irwin, Candace Bergen as Margaret Burke White, Roshan Seth as Pandit Nehru, and Martin Sheen as Walker. And starring and Ian Charleston. Martin Sheen. And starring Martin Sheen. <laughs> and Ian Charleston as Charlie Andrews. Was there anything you wanted to just discuss about any of those actors? We haven't really talked about Ben Kingsley. I was just going to say, I don't think we can really wrap this without talking about ben kingsley in this role and wouldn't you just be sweating buckets at the thought of oh. trying to play gandhi like tell me you're sleeping well at night impossible yeah, yeah impossible almost i watched a, a great interview with ben kingsley when he talked about trying to play this and he and attenborough sat down and watched hours of footage of gandhi to try to get a sense of the first thing would be like the movement and the cadence right like that seems to be like helen mirren famously said in a in a in an interview that she gave that when she played the queen the minute she had the walk down she felt like the rest would follow like the minute she had the movement right, down yeah. she felt like she could do the rest and for ben kingsley it was really the glasses as soon as he got the glasses he was in <laughs> no and i think for you know and you have to remember that like he didn't just play gandhi in like a two-year period he had to play gandhi in like a 60-year period of his life yeah and I think that that speaks to it. But anyway, so he says he they watched the footage and he was like, well, this is impossible. This is impossible. I can't replicate this. I can't replicate this. And I don't even think it's valuable in trying. I just have to find the spirit of this man and hope I look a lot like him and then find my way from there. And he said that that was his approach to success. And I think that I, th I can't imagine another actor 
playing this role. When John Briley wrote this script, he only mm-hmm. wrote it with John Hurt in mind. And That's if you bonkers were to, to Google a picture, I By did. The way, I just, who just passed away. Yeah. And if you look at a picture of John Hurt, you're like, this is madness. He could never have pulled this off. Right. And I no. do think that, you know, Dustin Gandhi is also wanting this role a lot. Like he was really yeah. trying to become the lead. Like, no. I d- <laughs> like I don't, but I'm also terrible. Like I'm also terrible at trying to see people in roles. Like when Nicole Kidman was cast as Lucille Ball, I was like, no way. And when Kristen Stewart was cast as Princess Diana, mm-hmm. I was like, no way. And then you see them, you see them in those roles and you're like, okay, I, I get, I get it a little bit. But in that, like to look at John Hurt or Dustin Hoffman, you just think there's no way. Plus you would get caught then in the legacy of blackface, right? Like, yes, Ben oh, yeah. Kingsley had to wear darker makeup to look like Gandhi, but he was also of British and Indian descent. So yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, so I think that matters. It does. I think I think it really does. Like his his dad came was from India, right? Like there, so there is that history from there. And to be perfectly frank, he does look a lot like Gandhi in the later stages of this movie, to mm-hmm. the point where even people in India were like, "Uh, is has he been like resurrected?" Like they really did think yes. that Gandhi was walking among them and again. I- think if you look at how much the people of India and the Indian government were involved in the production of this film, I can't imagine a Dustin Hoffman showing up and being like, or like, hey, everybody, look, Mickey Rooney's here. Like, I just don't even, I don't even know how that (laughs) would have even possibly worked. But I do, just to say, I think it was a phenomenal performance for Ben Kingsley. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely deserving of the Oscar for that year. I can't even imagine the other four even showing up. (laughs) I think one of them doesn't. I I just rewatched the, uh, that part of the ceremony of the Oscars that's on YouTube. Yeah. There's definitely one person who doesn't show up. So they, they knew. They just like, <laughs> was I'm it not, Anthony I'm Hopkins? Because he doesn't make a lot of trips out to Hollywood for these kind of things. No. The only time he actually came to the Oscars was the time he won for Silence of the Lambs because it was basically it. a slam dunk. Like, I love it. You're probably going to win. You yeah. got this, man. <laughs> to be fair, what good reason is there to ever leave Wales? Candace Bergen, of course. Murphy Brown. That's how I know Candace yeah, Bergen. Amazing to see her in a journalistic role. And you think, I wonder if mm-hmm. this is what gave birth to Murphy Brown. Like, what is the yeah, relationship have... between Murphy Brown being on the air and this film? They had to have been very close. Yeah, because Murphy Brown would have debuted mid-80s, late-80s. I can't remember. I'm looking it up. <laughs> something something in there. Who knows about time? Of course, there's John Gielgud, too. Like, I know John Gielgud is a longtime Shakespearean actor. And he sh- I think his last film performance was actually in Kenneth Branagh's version of Hamlet in 96 when he was, like, 95 at that wow. point like he he lived a long time murphy brown started in 1988 the year my sister was born there you go so her see her as a journalist in this role and then to go on and and see her and like i think murphy brown is one of the best best made television programs of the 80s no hands mm-hmm. just no no question hands no down. question hands down the cinematography is by ronnie taylor and billy williams basically they shot different portions of this movie and i don't know which portions each person took <laughs> for ronnie taylor the other three films that people might know them from are or tommy the uh, the who's tommy a chorus line and foreign body whereas billy williams would be known for on golden pond the wind and the lion and the manhattan project or the mm. kind of the three other films that he'd be most known for of course, written by John Briley, directed by Richard Attenborough, 
Now, as far as backstory here, of course, first, let's go through the entire history of Gandhi, Jen. So he was born. No, I'm not going to do that. I can't. Yikes. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Wayne, you're going to need more snacks. Uh, other than saying that as this film opens, we know that he was assassinated at 78 years old in 1948 and widely known for his stance on non-aggression. But Gandhi's life had been dramatized or documented before this film. He'd won the Time Magazine Person of the Year in 1930. A few different biographies had already been written about him. Uh, interesting enough, a 1979 opera by Philip Glass had already been produced. And there was this five-hour documentary that was made in 1968 that used archival footage to show Gandhi in his own words, which I think is the one that to Ben Kingsley used as a lot of his research was that yes. one specifically. But yes, of course, Jen, his largest claim of fame was from the Cole Porter musical Anything Goes during the song You're the Top, where they rhyme Mahatma Gandhi with Napoleon Brandy. So I'm sure most people oh, know know that song. God. Uh, in recent <laughs> in recent years, if we fo- let's focus on 1982 though specifically here. So John Briley had been writing for the screen since the late 50s. He'd actually written Children of the Damned in 1964. Have you ever watched the the movie Children of the Damned? I have. It's the precursor to Children of the Corn, basically, but it's a group of creepy kids. Yeah, but ironically, also attention script. In the 70s, he had written such things as Pope Joan, The Medusa Touch, and Eagle's Wing. Richard Attenborough had been wanting wait, 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 to wait. make this... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. John Briley. Yeah, tell me more about John Briley. Historically yeah. known as a miserable person to work with. Every single person that? who has worked with him has said he's di- he's difficult. He doesn't take criticism. He fights everything. He's, you know, it's... You get in bed with John Briley and you're... It is a battle of wills. And apparently it was, it was well known that Richard Attenborough and John Briley did not see eye to eye from the time that the first draft was was produced to the to all the way through to the editing of the film. Richard Attenborough says, listen, I wouldn't have wanted anybody else to write this 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 picture. This was the script that I wanted to make a movie on with my own t- touch to it. Mm. I it was a miserable experience, but I'm I think, you know, he I think he said something clever like, you know, he's a terrible son of a bitch, but the exact son of a bitch I needed on this project. So John Briley has never come in or out of a project without there being a ton. He is the Miley Cyrus of screenwriters. He just comes in like a wrecking ball and, uh, you know, swings around and, and makes things very difficult. But his skill is still so honored and treasured as a as an right. as a narrative writer that, you know, people continue to work with him. And I think that I think I'm aspiring for the same thing in my life absolutely miserable and impossible you've got a real john briley essence about you Jen. i do he's a miserable it's miserable but the talent is so good that you're like i have to i have to work with this person i think that will also be my legacy me and john that'll be my legacy richard attenborough had been wanting to make this movie for about 20 years he had become close with prime minister nehru who does appear in this film along with gandhi's daughter indira gandhi and one of the many setbacks was getting funding, basically. Uh, Nehru was putting up some of the money, but then he passed away and it fell through. It was this whole thing that was mired in rights issues and funding problems. And finally, at the end of the 1960s, Attenborough approached David Lean to direct Gandhi, which makes sense. Kind of right in David Lean's wheelhouse here. Lean agrees to make this. He wanted to have Alec Guinness play Gandhi, but eventually the project is abandoned so that they can go off to make Lawrence of Arabia. Gandhi was going to then be his follow-up, but then again, Lean abandons the project 
uh, in the middle of it to instead go and make Ryan's daughter. Do you know anything about Ryan's daughter, Jen? No, 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 no. But Ryan's people who like it, like it. Have you seen it? I have not. Um, I w- I'm interested in doing so because it was hated when it first came out. Like really? critics hated it. Audiences hated it. And so much so that David Lean would not make another movie for 15 years. <laughs> like it just got so brutally attacked when it when it came out. Maybe he should have made Gandhi instead. Just saying. It is now the late 70s. Attenborough again tries to start production. But then a state of emergency is called in India and filming cannot be possible. So again, a bunch of trials and tribulations happen. And eventually what happens is that the Indian government supplies funds, as does the National Film Development Corporation of India. Attenborough raises the rest of the money from this new production company called Goldcrest, the CEO of which is Jake Eberts, who is friends with John Briley, who had Look introduced them two together. John Briley introduces uh, Richard Attenborough to Jake Eberts, who had just started this new company. And now that they've secured funding and had the location to shoot, they need to find an actor to play him, to play the title role. Do this worldwide search, eventually hire Ben Kingsley. Uh, production went for seven months. From what I can see, no major set problems by the sounds of it. Just one interesting production note that during that funeral scene, there is... I actually underestimated it. It's actually 300,000 extras are in that shot with no digital effects no provided. No CGI there. That's extraordinary. Like wild. Yeah. It's like those really old like biblical epics from the 40s and 50s where it's like literally a cast of thousands that you're seeing yep. in the background. Yeah. Uh, it gets released. It's generally positively reviewed. It would be nominated for 11 Academy Awards. It won eight, including Best Screenplay for John Briley, Best Actor for Ben Kingsley, Best Director for Richard Attenborough, and of course, Best Picture. The one last question I kind of just really had for you, Jen. I mean, there's one thing to talk about the history that this is trying to encompass, but what was going on in India in the early 80s? Like, is there anything that's relevant there that that informs the making of this movie, do you think? Well, I think there was still a lot of political instability. I mean, you know, you have to look at where India is geographically, you know, set in the world. Yeah. There's a lot of tension that surrounds them. You know, they also, you know, have extraordinary, uh, I mean, the size of India. You know, we live in Canada with 35 million people. That would be in a single province of 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 India. And I think, you know, they were grappling with where they fit in the world stage in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of um, continued economic instability, a lot of political instability still at that time. Um, you know, as the world continued to globalize, you know, what, how was India going to be part of that, especially when it had such a complicated relationship with, you know, colonial trading. Um, so I think it was really a time where India had to try to, was tr- trying to figure out where it fit and was really trying to, to tell on the world stage its legacy. So I think the timing of this Gandhi film probably was very, very important mm-hmm. um, to the Indian people at this time. It's, it is kind of interesting to think about like the British rule of the entire world for so long, right? Like the, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And in the United States, of course, bloody revolution has to happen. In yes. India, there's this nonviolent action that happens that forces them out. And then in Canada, it's like, listen, we'll, just, we'll keep the queen on our money. Can you just get out of our business for a little bit? Yes, Canada is still part of, of the Commonwealth. Uh, but Canada, yeah. of course, achieved its own its own independence as a country of its own, which is why we fly our flag. But I think, you know, it's it really is striking that, you know, India, you know, while theirs was a movement of nonviolence, certainly violence was pressed upon Happened. them. 
And we always think about physical violence. And I think the film does a great job of that. But I think what should be genuinely mentioned is the economic violence that was put upon mm. a, a country. And I think the British felt, you know, rightfully so, because we provided all of this infrastructure and therefore the commerce should be part of, you know, the commerce that then is, you know, a byproduct of that should also be ours. And, and it's amazing. Like there's a striking dichotomy between like the tea tax that led to the American revolution and the salt sure. tax in, in India that led to their revolution. I mean, there's striking similarities of how that came to play. Like him going and actually picking salt from the sea, right? That's saying this such belongs an to the thing. Yeah. This belongs to the people of India. Um, I, but I think well, it's such a striking, wrong, Jen, I know that in the, our deep and rich fiction here, we have just watched this movie and it wasn't two weeks ago that I watched this movie. <laughs> but he does mention that, doesn't he? Somewhere in the movie about like, you say that we're free, but we're actually your slaves. There's something like that, that he makes the comparison of like, you're given the illusion that we have freedom and choice, but you dictate everything that we can do. So that yeah. doesn't, that's actually the absence of choice then at that point. Yeah. And I think that that was, that was the argument uh, I think made to, to farmers who still to this day, I mean, India's farmers continue to have an, inc an incredibly um, challenging road to the market despite the fact that they produce an incredible amount of, of goods and services for us. And I think that that will shape their future. Now, it's so political. I think that will shape their future political aspirations. You see Indian governments really watching what's happening with Russia, really watching what's happening with China. They want to know that since America has abdicated its role as the world superpower in the new world order, right. do they have a better chance to get their goods and services to market with a, you know, with a, with an, you know, a Chinese led, um, you know, global superpower. So it's been a it's been a tough road for for India for a long time, and I I do think that the film tries to lean into it without getting too political by saying, you know, everything that we have is is an illusion. What we want now is to assume assume our full independence. The new world order is going to be run by me and Hulk Hogan. That's a safe way for this film to proceed because. Really, then, when India did gain its independence, things did not instantly get better. I think it's important to note, you know, then they had to manage all of this infrastructure. They had an incredible, like the poverty in India that continues to perpetuate um, itself right. is incredibly, I mean, you know, we don't talk about Calcutta in the, in the terms of Mother Teresa and Gandhi. We talk about Cal Calcutta in terms of what's happening today. I mean, the, the economic disparity with India, the economic pressures. I mean, you think it's hard to farm in this country. You think it's hard for farmers in this country. What's happening to Indian farmers, you know, in this film has, it is, it did not get better. Like the film didn't go like, wasn't that great that Gandhi just made it better. Roll <laughs> the credits. Your hands off. Yeah. Roll the credits. And I think that's really why that there's an effort to celebrate the man because the story of India gets more complicated following, following independence. Even though it is a bit hand waved away, I do think that there's that impending doom. You kind of feel like, you know, like this, this isn't just like a happy, magical, like everything is better now that he's, yeah. he's made this stand and we have a different country. But what they did try to, what they did try to do is say, we set a goal yeah. and through nonviolence, we achieved that goal. And I think that was the narrative of the film. And then yes. it was like, thank you for coming. We're done here. The machine has said that we do have to wrap this up here then. Um, but before we go and give our ratings for this movie, let's go back and talk about Critics' Choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released. So Roger Ebert 
Minchin wrote the following. Gandhi stands at the quiet center, and Ben Kingsley's performance finds the right note and stays with it. There are complexities here. Gandhi is not simply a moral story with a happy ending, and the tragedy of the bloodshed between the Hindu and Muslim populations of liberated India is addressed, as is the partition of India and Pakistan, which we can almost literally feel breaking Mahatma Gandhi's heart. I imagine that for many Americans, Mahatma Gandhi remains a dimly understood historical figure. I suspect a lot of us know he was a great Indian leader without quite knowing why, and such is our ignorance of Eastern history and culture, we may not fully realize that his movement did indeed liberate India in one of the greatest political and economic victories of all time, achieved through nonviolent principles. What is important about the film is not that it serves as a history lesson, although it does, but that at a time when the threat of a nuclear holocaust hangs ominously in the air, it reminds us that we are, after all, human, and thus capable of the most extraordinary and wonderful achievements simply through the use of our imagination, our will, and our sense of right. This just reminded me that I did actually want to bring this up, but we do have to remind ourselves that this is smack dab in the Cold War, too. Like, this yes. message of this film is probably going to be received very differently uh, than... Well, maybe not so much right now as we see maybe the outbreak of another world war, but definitely would hit very differently in 1982. Absolutely. Don't we miss Roger Ebert? Don't you miss I Roger do. Ebert? I do. Like, oh, I love how he put so much. A lot of people didn't thought he was a little bit too nice to movies sometimes, but whatever. I like the way he wrote about I thought them. If anything, he was too cruel, but oh, I miss Roger Ebert. Pauline Kael did not like this movie. <laughs> I'm going to put that out there. This is what <laughs> she wrote. Leaving the theater where I saw Gandhi, I felt the way the British must have when they left India, exhausted and relieved. Directed by Richard Attenborough, the film, which runs three hours and eight minutes, has no dramatic center. Perhaps in compensation, the action all seems to take place in the dead middle of the screen. In his interviews, Attenborough appears to have an instinct for the telling detail, the anecdote that reveals character, but that's part of what he lacks as a movie maker. Gandhi is reverential and holy, like the pictures that used to be made about Jesus. Gandhi, too, goes by in a cloud of serenity, and everyone who sees him knuckles under, with the exception of a few misguided fellows, of course. Ben Kingsley, the English actor of half-Indian extraction, who plays the Mahatma, looks the part, has a fine, quiet presence, and conveys Gandhi's shrewdness. He has also mastered a smile that's part compassion, part wince of pain. Kingsley is impressive. The picture isn't. It isn't a disgrace. It just isn't much of anything. That's what she had to say. Oh, boy. I think that's unfair. I think I'm a little closer to her. I, I think the last sentence, there's maybe a little bit much of, of how she describes it, but maybe I'm and in the middle of it. And yet offers strikingly no, su no suggestions on how this film should be made. Just, I don't like it. Well, you it can go back different. in time and yell at Pauline Kael. That's what Jen and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini-review of the film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page, letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast, and not usher in the next apocalypse, and maybe get Dave back, who knows, you can get you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode you can support for as low as a dollar per month, and something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Jen, you're here, you get to rate this movie, it's going to go in the official tally. Hey! So if you were, if you were to give a rating to this movie out of five, what would, what would you give it? Four and a half. 
4.5. Big ol' pass or big ol' a, a, a rave review from Jen Sanford. I think based on the performance of Kingsley, the scale, the discipline, the celebration, the, mm-hmm. the, how this had salience to the Indian people, which I think matters a lot, um, I think it earns a 4.5. So as I prefaced at the very, very beginning, my rating and my reaction is probably going to sound way more negative than what I actually feel about this movie. But one of my things of how I actually come to my ratings is rewatchability. I actually really do prize rewatchability a lot for films. And I'm probably never going to sit down and watch this movie again. I'm just not going to be like, I am in the mood to watch Gandhi tonight. Not like in the same way that I would like with a four hour film like Lawrence of Arabia or something like that, where it's like, yeah, I, I can sit down and rewatch this that again. That is the wrong way to, that is the wrong way because rewatchability no, is also based in your ability to say to other people, have you seen Gandhi? And I know mm-hmm. you well enough to know that you will absolutely say to people, you should watch Gandhi. It's a good film. Push my, my glasses up on my nose. Have you seen Gandhi? Because I've seen Gandhi. <laughs> uh, anyways, I'm giving it a 2.5 is what oh, I'm going to give to it. Boo. However, that does average out to a 3.5, uh, which is actually going to tie with a couple of films here. Um, so this is going to be hard. Jen, have you ever seen the movie Fitzcarraldo? Yes, I have. Do you think this is better or worse than Fitzcarraldo? Better. Okay. And then have you seen The Verdict with uh, Paul Newman? The verdict no. of Paul Newman. No. Okay. This is what I say we do here then. You haven't seen the verdict. You have seen Fitzgerald. Let's put it right in the middle here then. Okay. <laughs> and split the difference then. Because uh, I actually kind of agree with you. I, even though I gave it a lower rating, I think what it's attempting to do in Gandhi is, is better than probably what Fitzgerald is attempting to do. So that means vamp for time, vamp for time as I have to do math. Well, I can vamp for time as I say, you know, for those of you who would like to wish Dave well... In his time on this podcast, we've set up an email address for you to do it. So uh, for those of you that want to thank Dave for the time that he's put into this podcast, you can send him an email at suckitdave at gmail.com. I want to know who gets those emails. <laughs> uh, entering our list, though, at the number five position, then, is Gandhi. One last thing, Jan, then. I know you haven't seen The Verdict, then. Have you seen Missing, by any chance? I doubt you have. That has Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek in it. No, I don't think I have. So then the other two films that were nominated for Best Picture that year with The Verdict and Missing was Tootsie uh, and E.T. So out of those three choices, would you still pick Gandhi for Best Picture, do you think? Yes. Yeah. For, yes. for me, I think I probably would. Of the, of the five Best Picture nominees, we're not talking about the whole year of 1982. Of the nominees, I think I probably would have leaned more towards E.T. probably that year as, as my winner. Uh, definitely has the more cultural relevance looking back at it 40 years later but yeah i i think my challenge is is that of those films i have not seen et oh my god okay well you're yeah, totally the, out of the running here then i'm the one person i'm the one person i feel strongly it was the that most ever seen e. successful movie of all time when it was released <laughs> everyone had seen et i've um, seen every right. steve, steven spielberg film except et it falls into the same category as titanic where when there's that kind of hype you're like I better not. Right. Do I need to? All right. Well, I'm wondering what uh, I'm going to get to watch next week. Maybe you're going to be here, Jen. Maybe you won't. I don't know. I don't know how this crazy machine is going to work as this crazy <laughs> deep and rich fiction continues to run. I'm going to push this button here. Oh, it's going to be another over three hour long film. <laughs> I, oh, I get to watch. 
going to watch Das Boot, Ooh, which I believe das is boot. German for the boot. <laughs> have you seen Das Boot by any chance, Jen? I have. Did you like it? I did. I'm excited to watch it, I'm, I'm, but I've never watched it. I've only heard the, the stories about it, I guess, for Again, lack of a, a better film, word. a film with a, with a lasting legacy. Jen, thank you for being Dave this week. I'm just excited by the fact that you decided to come through this interdimensional door and talk to me here in literally the year 1982. So um, you're free, I guess, to go back to 2022. I don't know how time and space work, but if people wanted to get in contact with you and see what you're up to, is there ways for them to do so? Oh, Kyle, no. I'm the permanent <laughs> Dave. I'm not going oh. anywhere. I'm not going okay. anywhere. Dave's going to have to fight me. Um, and I'm not going, he can go back to 2022 or whatever year. I just assumed you just sent him back to the seventies since he didn't like a single fucking movie <laughs> from that era. Not I listened to that whole, movie. that whole season with just, Oh, Dave doesn't like it. What a surprise, surprise, surprise. Um, yes. People can just reinforce that I belong here inside this podcast by reaching me on Twitter at the Jen Sanford. That's Jen double N S A N F O R D. Um, you can find me there posting all sorts of great content about how this is where I rightfully belong. So thanks for, thanks for having me. I'll see you next week, everybody. I didn't say this at the front though, uh, Jen, but uh, you do look really good in that toga. Oh, thanks. I think you showing up completely naked was a bad choice. The New World Order is going to be run by me and Hulk Hogan.